Well, we come tonight to the second of the feasts of the Lord, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And you'll recall from our previous studies that there are four spring feasts, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and Pentecost, and that these were fulfilled prophetically in the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you have the church age, and you have three autumnal feasts, which are yet to be fulfilled, which uh, pertain to the second coming of Christ, uh, the Feast of Trumpets, Atonement, and Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread began, as we just read in the book of Leviticus, on the 15th day of Nisan. Passover is on the 14th day. Unleavened Bread begins the day after Passover. And so it's intrinsically linked with Passover, so much so that it's now seen as part and parcel of the same festival. The Jews basically just have rolled it into one holiday. And uh, the last time we discussed these matters, we saw that the Passover relates to the cross, that it portrays truths pertaining to the death of Christ, and that in the Passover we have a picture of our salvation. But in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we have a picture of our sanctification. It pictures Christ's burial and shows us the consequences of our salvation as they work themselves out in our lives. Now, after the Passover night, the Egyptians pressed upon the Jewish slaves, the Hebrew slaves, to leave their land. They compelled them to go. They wanted rid of them. They saw them as the root of all their problems with respect to the plagues. And the only provision the Hebrews were able to take on that evening was dough, which had no time to rise. So it was without leaven. And so they had to eat it that way the next day, baked it the next day, and had to eat it as unleavened bread. Let's go back to Exodus 12 and look at verse 13. Exodus 12 and verse 30, and we'll see the account of these events. It says, And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Remember, they had just suffered the uh, judgment of the angel of death coming through the land. And he called for Moses and Aaron by night. There's the urgency of it. And he said, rise up and get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Verse 34. And the people took their dough before it was unleavened, or before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound up on their clothes upon their shoulders. In verse 39. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they brought forth out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not tarry, neither had they prepared for themselves any victual, any provision. Now, this unleavened bread is referred to in the Hebrew language as matzah bread. And matzah just means unleavened. It's a, it's a wonderful symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we'll show you in a little bit. But before we do anything else this evening, we need to consider two vitally important truths. Two things we have to get a hold of this evening. First of all, we should understand Egypt in Scripture is nearly always associated with faithlessness 
Uh, it's associated with a dependence upon human resources instead of God. And it's a type of the world and of worldliness. Let's look at that throughout the scriptures. Look in Isaiah for a moment, chapter 31. Isaiah chapter 31. Remember that Abraham, when famine struck the land, went down into Egypt. It was an act of faithlessness and a refusal to trust and depend upon the Lord. And in Isaiah chapter 31, the Lord says, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help. And stay on horses and trust in chariots that are trusting in the power and might of the Egyptians because they are many. And in horsemen because they are very strong. And they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. Uh, A New Testament reference, the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, the record concerning Moses and his testimony. Verse 26 Let's back up to verse 24, actually. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. So you see a dichotomy there, a division of two that the Israelites are referred to as the people of God, whereas the Egyptians are godless or pagan people. And then the Israelites, Moses rejects the pleasures of sin, whereas the Egyptians enjoyed the pleasures of sin. And verse 26, esteeming Moses, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is Invisible, And then it goes on and talks about the Passover. So again we see Egypt is associated with unbelief, with worldly pleasures and so on. Uh, Jude, the book of Jude and uh, verse 5 of that uh, chapter. Uh, Jude and verse 5. Jude writes, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. So they are seen as being saved out of the land of Egypt, out of the world, away from unbelief and idolatry and so on. Chapter 11 of Revelation in verse 8, and this is a reference to Jerusalem during the tribulation period. When the two witnesses are put to death and their bodies lie in the streets of the city. uh, And the city suffers the condemnation of God because of its uh, idolatry and its its, uh, lack of faith. And it says in verse 8, And their dead bodies, the bodies of the witnesses, shall lie in the street of the great city, Jerusalem, which which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. And if there's any doubt as to where that is, It says, where also our Lord was crucified. Well, we know the Lord wasn't crucified in Sodom. And he certainly wasn't crucified in Egypt. He was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. And so that's the city that's in view there. And is metaphorically described as Sodom and as Egypt. So, Passover. Passover is about our salvation out of Egypt. It's about how the Lord took us 
out of the world, how he saved us uh, from uh, our own pagan past and separated us from the world unto himself. That's the first thing you should remember tonight as we go through our study. The second thing you should remember is this. Leaven in the Bible is a type of sin. It's a type of sin. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll come back to this passage toward the end of our message tonight. But I want to just read with you from verses 7 and 8. Paul says to them, and we'll look at this contextually a little later on. He says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So just as Paul in verse 7 links the sacrifice of Christ to the Passover, he connects those two and shows how one is symbolically a picture of the other, so too now he connects our Christian lives with the feast of the unleavened bread, saying that we should keep the feast with sincerity and truth. So this shows us that when Christ enters into our lives in salvation, uh, he brings cleansing, uh, and that, and that having been saved, everything unholy, everything worldly, everything unclean, everything impure must go. And so Passover speaks about our salvation. Practically, unleavened bread speaks about our sanctification. So we want to consider tonight this particular feast, the feast of unleavened bread. The first thing I want you to see is the requirements of the feast. And we read those back in Exodus chapter 12 of verses 15 to 17. And you'll have noticed there in verse 15 that the primary requirement is that all leaven was to be removed from their homes. Do you ever wonder why it is that people spring clean their homes? That's actually rooted in the Bible. The Jews, quite literally, spring clean their homes. It's a practice of Judaism. It's part of their law that they had to clean out uh, their homes. So we're going into winter now, and you know how that goes. Dark nights, who could be bothered? (laughs) Rainy days miserable it's depressing but come march time and you start to see a little bit of length in the days a little bit of sunshine and suddenly everybody's got the hoover out and the dusters out and they're going crazy and they're polishing and they're cleaning and we're spring cleaning that goes back to judaism and it was jewish practice the jewish people go through their homes or went through their homes and this was the law with a fine tooth comb to ensure there wasn't one drop of leaven, of yeast, in their home. Then for seven days, they had to eat their bread unleavened. Now this is a fatal truth, because if you remember, Passover was one day. Unleavened bread is seven days. And uh, actually, when you think about it, the death of Christ, the, the purchase of our salvation took place on one day. On the day that Jesus went to Calvary. Our salvation is connected to one moment in time. When we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But if Passover was one day, there are two feasts that are lengthier in their duration. And one of those is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And both of those feasts that are longer point to the outcome of Christ's work. So unleavened bread presents us with a picture of the believer's life in Christ. Not now a single moment in time or a single day, but an ongoing period of time showing us that the work of sanctification isn't complete on day one, but is something that progresses over a period of time. Now this feast is defined as a high Sabbath. That is a Sabbath Extra to the weekly seventh day Sabbath. So, you know, if the Passover uh, fell on Friday, uh, then you would have the high Sabbath on Saturday and so on. Okay, and then you'd have that all the way through till the following Saturday, which would be another high Sabbath. So the feast was one in which certainly on day one and day seven, you were not allowed to do any work whatsoever other than the preparation of food, and it was to be a perpetual reminder forever to be kept by the Jewish people of leaving Egypt in haste. And if you go to verse 17 of Exodus chapter 12, it says, You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Notice what it says, Therefore shall ye observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. So it's perpetual, okay? So that's the requirement of the feast. Then I want you to think about the rituals of the feast. Now what do the Jewish people do when it comes to unleavened bread today, to this particular feast? Well, in the first place, the women of the home will clean their houses, they'll begin 30 days prior to Passover, and they'll begin to remove all leaven from their homes. Can you imagine how that would go down in our homes where we are so fond of our bread? Wouldn't it be a shocker if you came home and found out your wife had thrown out the soda bread, the wheaten bread, the the pan loaf, the plain loaf, the crusty loaf, they're all out in the bin. You say, what kind of holiday is this? We have a holiday and we get bread in. But they have a holiday and they largely throw the bread out. And anything that would have leaven in it is thrown out. The cakes go out, the buns go out, everything goes out. There's none of that. okay? And then the day before Passover, all the leaven has been removed, except for ten small pieces which are deliberately hid around the home. So they go around the home and they hide these ten little Uh, pieces of leaven, 10 pieces of bread, if you like, around the home. And, uh, you know, the mother does that. The children, if there are children in the home, she gets involved in that. And immediately after sunset, as soon as the sun goes down, the father begins a symbolic search for those 10 pieces of leaven. He takes with him a candle, a feather, and a wooden spoon. That's what, even to this day, that's what they use. A candle, a feather and a wooden spoon. In an electrified home, you know, a home that has electric like ours, he switches off all the lights and he uses only the candlelight to try and find out where the children have hidden the bread. You can imagine this is exciting for the kids, particularly, you know, it's a, it's a big game, it's a lot of fun. And so he does that. And when the father finds a piece of leaven, 
Then he uses the feather to sweep it up onto the wooden spoon. He has a paper bag and then he puts it into the paper bag uh, with his wooden spoon. And then when all ten pieces have been collected, he takes it outside ultimately and burns it. And as he burns it, he offers a prayer saying, any chametz, that is any leaven, which is in my possession, which I did not see and remove nor know about, shall be nullified and become ownerless like the dust of the earth. So he says to God, we've done our best to clean out the leaven from this home. If there happens to be a speck in there, Lord, don't account it to us. It's not mine, it's not theirs, it's no one's. It belongs to no one. So that's what they did. That, and that's what they do, even to this day. That's what Jewish people do in a modern Jewish home come Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now you want to think about the relationship of the feast, because all of this is pictorial, and it is teaching us something of Christ. Now, in Psalm 16 and verse 8, Verse 10, there's a very interesting verse, and it says this, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see, what? Corruption. You won't allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, on the basis of that verse, on the premise of that verse, some prosperity preachers teach that Jesus went to hell, and he burned in hell. But that's not what the word hell means there. It's not referring to hellfire. It's not talking about the eternal punishment of the lost. In that context, it means the underworld, the grave, the pit. Thou wilt not suffer my soul to be in the grave, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. So this is a messianic prophecy. And Jesus heard to proclaim that his body will not see corruption. Question. You ready for this? What is the symbol of corruption? I've taught you this already tonight. Who said what? Leaven. Praise the Lord. Somebody was listening. Okay. So leaven is the symbol of corruption. Roger, I'll get a star on the way out. You're going to be star on your card there on the way out. Uh, Leaven is the symbol of corruption. So we could say of Christ's body that it was unleavened. Because according to Jewish tradition, corruption of the flesh physically only begins after the fourth day of dying. All right? The fourth day after a death, that's when corruption is said to begin in the Jewish understanding of things. Look in John chapter 11 for a moment. John chapter 11. And I want you to notice two verses. And this is, of course, the great passage in which Lazarus is raised from the dead. He experiences resurrection. And uh, you know that you know the account very well. You know the narrative. The Lord Jesus hears that he's sick. And he tells his disciples he's dead. And then he waits away. And then he goes to the home of Mary, Martha and Mary. And you know they're upset with him because he didn't come when he first heard that Lazarus was sick. And now he's dead and they feel like, well, you missed your opportunity. And uh, the Lord then is going to go to the grave, obviously, and he's going to raise him from the dead. But I want you to notice uh, verse 17 of our reading. Chapter 11 and verse 17. 
And John's very careful here. He says, Then when Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had lain in the grave four days already. Now notice that. Look at verse 39. Jesus said, Take you away the stone. All right, so he's come to the graveside now. And he says to the people, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, doesn't think it's a good idea. And she says unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead, notice, four days. What was it that Martha was concerned about? Well, she was concerned that the body had begun to corrupt and that if you opened the grave, there was going to be a terrible stench that would come out from Lazarus' rotten body. So you see that, that uh, tradition, you see that, that idea within Jewish culture that on the fourth day, you experience corruption after death. But what day does Jesus rise on? He, rises, he, he rose the third day. So in other words, he arose without corruption. He arose in Jewish understanding without corruption. And that's exactly what Psalm 16.10 says. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. He won't see four days in the grave. He's got to come out before the fourth day. That's the prophecy of Psalm 16. Now, unleavened bread then is pictorial of the Lord in his burial. Because whilst the Jews were celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where was Jesus? He was in the grave. So it's, portrayal, it's a portrayal of his burial. Now remember certain things about the Lord Jesus. First of all, you should realize and know that he portrayed himself as the bread of life. And in the, in the first place, he was born in Bethlehem. What does Bethlehem mean? Bethlehem means house of bread. House of bread. He's always associated with bread. Now look in John chapter 6 for a moment. John chapter 6 and verse 31. John chapter 6 and verse 31. He says, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life to the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Now, let's think about his, his actions on the Passover night. On the night of the Last Supper, he's celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And what does he use to portray his body? Bread. We do this every Lord's Day, don't we? We gather around the, the Lord's table and we use bread as a symbol of the Lord Jesus body. And it says in Luke's gospel, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and gave it unto them saying, this is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance 
of me. Now, when he said that, Jesus was holding in his hand a piece of matzah bread. And there's a picture of matzah bread on our screen. Now, I want you to notice three things about matzah bread that is significant to this picture. Number one, it is striped. You can see the stripes on the bread. Number two, it is pierced. You can see the little holes throughout the bread. And number four, it looks bruised as a consequence of the cooking process, uh, the baking process. You can see those brown marks on the bread. And what does the Bible say of the Lord Jesus? He was bruised for our iniquities. It says, by his stripes we are healed. And that he was pierced in his hands and in his feet. So the Lord Jesus didn't hold up a piece of soft white bread like we have on a Sunday morning here, or a Sunday afternoon, but he held up this matzah bread, or something akin to that, which would have looked exactly or somewhat like this, the uh, bread that we see on the screen, more like a cracker, what we would consider a, a water wafer, or a Jacob's cream cracker, or something like that. So uh, he holds up a piece of bread like that. It is striped, it is pierced, it is bruised. In other words, it's the perfect picture of what he is about to endure on Calvary's cross. So when he holds it up, he says, this is my body, which is given for you. It's a much better picture than than our loaf of bread, isn't it? Much better picture. This is my body, which is broken for you. Maybe we should consider doing that, having that kind of bread, rather than than the leavened kind of bread. But nevertheless, you know, all of this, is tremendously important. And not only is it important pertaining to the, to the sufferings and to the burial of the Lord Jesus, but it's tremendously significant for us as believers because our lives are to mirror, mirror his life. And we know from Scripture that when he died, we died with him. When he was buried, we were buried with him. When he rose, we rose in him. So our lives are a copycat of his in many respects. And so when you think about dying to self, you think about being crucified with Christ, that's mortifying the flesh. But then in reference to the burial, to the unleavened bread, the feast of the unleavened bread, we're then to live a life that is free from corruption, free from immorality, free from everything that is considered sinful, unclean, or evil. In other words, we're to rid our lives of leaven. And this leaven takes different forms. Look with me in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, for a moment. The Gospel of Luke and chapter 12, the first verse. I want you to see one kind of leaven. Verse 1 of Luke chapter 12, it says, In the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, First of all, beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees. You say, well, what is that? Well, he defines it, which is hypocrisy. So we ought to rid out of our lives the leaven of of hypocrisy, and of course, the Greek word is hypocrisis. I'll get this word out. Hypocrisis, which means.
to put on a pretense, to act literally as a stage player, to act as, a, as an actor upon a stage. Now, in Bible times, they didn't have electrical amplification such as we have. So, you know, if you go to the West End in London and you watch a stage production, there are microphones that are hanging from the roof. You might not always see them because they're in the dark, but they're there and you can pick up the sound of the actors upon the stage. But what do they do in Bible times? Well, in Greek and Roman plays, when actors stepped up onto the stage and they had a great big crowd in front of them, very often they would appear wearing masks. And those masks had a a mechanism within them which was there to control uh, uh, the volume and the intonation of their voices. And that's what Jesus was referring to when he speaks about the leaven of hypocrisy. He's saying of the Pharisee that he's a mask wearer. He's hiding the truth about himself. Uh, He's looking like something and sounding like something that he isn't in reality. He's playing a role. And so hypocrisy is profession without Christ, without possession of Christ. It's about putting on a show before others. Notice how the Lord details it. If you go back to Matthew chapter 6 for a moment. Matthew chapter 6, he gives us some very specific details of what the Pharisees did in respect to their practice that he felt and was rightly, rightly feeling was hypocrisy. Chapter 6 and verse 1 says, Take heed that you do not your alms before men. Alms is a means of giving to the poor. Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues, and in the streets that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father which is in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Verse 16, moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast, Verily I say unto you, they have the reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face. Chapter 15 and verse 7, he condemns them again. He says, ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So we know the Lord Jesus constantly and consistently condemned the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. Can you imagine? It's hard to, it's hard to imagine that this happened, but it did happen, that they actually would blow a trumpet 
before they gave their offering. Can you imagine someone going to those little boxes at the back of our hall, you know, and taking out a trumpet, blowing the trumpet, everybody turns around, and then they're dropping their offering into the box and heading off, and they're letting you know, look, I'm giving to God. And Archie said, you know what? It's an act. It's a pretense. If you want to give to the Lord, don't let the left hand know what the right hand's doing. It's, it's not a matter for people to know. It's between you and God. He keeps the account. And the same with respect to their prayer life. They stood on the prayer life and they made, uh, on the street corners and they made, uh, made a scene when they were praying. They still do that. You know, uh, you know, Lord willing, Mark will be home tonight and I'm sure he'll tell you when he got to the Western Wall in Jerusalem, you know, Jews do not pray quietly there. They're rocking back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. They're making a scene. How does this, how does this movement Get God's attention. It's not about getting God's attention. It's about getting man's attention. Saying, look at me. I'm praying. I'm a holy man. Look what I'm doing. And it's all about God's intention. Or it's all about man's attention. And the same, when they, when they fasted, I love what the Lord says, he tells them not to disfigure their faces. They looked miserable. You know, I, I mentioned that my friend, Pastor Fittis, is, is coming in a couple of weeks for our harvest service. I'm very much looking forward to seeing him. I haven't seen him for a number of years. And uh, he and I used to work together at Bray Hill. He was my uh, assistant at Bray Hill. We were co-pastors there and, uh, for, for a while. And we used to do a bit of visitation together. And we went out this one day, and uh, he confided in me that he was fasting about something that day. Well, he, he's... He's been my friend a very long time. And so I thought, well, I'm going to play up on this. And so every time he went out visiting, he always wanted to go for fish and chips at lunchtime. He wanted to go for fish and chips and, uh, or we'd go to Kentucky Fried Chicken. And so this day I said to him, do you want to go to Kentucky Fried Chicken? And he says, no, I told you I was fasting. And I says, well, sure, I'm not fasting. I've got to eat something. And he says, all right. He said, I'll go with you. So he came with me, and I ordered a big box of chicken. And I was sitting there licking the chicken, you know. And I was going, man, this is great, Tom. You're, it's a, you picked a bad day to fast, and, and I'm, you know, I'm really making much of it. And, you know, in fairness to him, he took it in good form. Later that afternoon, we did a visit. He'd probably tell you this story. We did a visit. We went into a house of one of our church members, and uh, I was sitting there eating the peanuts, enjoying the peanuts, and uh, the lady was out the back. I think she was making this cup of tea. And then she came in and she says, don't eat those peanuts. She says, my daughter's just licked all the candy off those. So uh, he, felt that was the, he felt that was the fair judgment of God on me for making his life miserable when he was fasting. But he, he wasn't disfiguring his face. He wasn't letting anybody know. He's just letting me know because we normally eat on that day. But the Pharisees, they wanted everybody to know. I mean, they contorted their feet. They looked miserable. And they wanted to put on this front of self-righteousness. And, you know, sometimes we feel like hypocrites when we sin. But hypocrisy isn't about sinning. It's not about failing to live up to a particular standard. It's about pretending to live up to a standard when you know you're not living up to that standard. That's what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy is always about pretense. Hypocrisy keeps us from what Paul says, the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
Now, go with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 8. Here's a second form of hypocrisy, the leaven of sensationalism. Look in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, and verse 15. Here's a charge the Lord Jesus makes to his disciples. When he says then, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and of the leaven of Herod. Now, notice it's not just the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, but he throws in here the leaven of Herod. And I've read various commentaries on this, and they say the leaven of Herod is things like materialism, pragmatism, ungodly political alliances, and so on. But actually, the key to understanding the leaven of Herod is in the context. If you look at verses 11 and 12, the Pharisees came forth and began to question him, question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and saith, Why doth this generation seek after a sign? Why can't they just believe the word of God? Verily I say unto you, there shall be there shall no sign be given unto this generation. Now go with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, and you'll see a parallel in the behavior of Herod. Luke chapter 23, verse 8. Here's the Lord Jesus now, prior to his crucifixion, standing before Herod. It says, and when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad. Why? For he was desirous to see him for a long season. Why? Because he had heard many things of him. And notice, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Was Herod blowing a trumpet when he gave an offering? No. Was he fasting on street corners? Of course not. You know, was he praying in such a way as to draw attention to himself? That's not what Herod did. But what he did do, and what he shared in common with the Pharisees, was this desire that some miracle would be done. That some sensational event would occur. In other words, the Pharisees and Herod were both sign seekers. And Jesus, as we just read in Mark 12, described that a hallmark as the sign of an evil and adulterous generation. Herod and the Pharisees typify the leaven of signs and wonders. The desire to always see something sensational, something miraculous. Unwilling just to take the Bible at its word. Unwilling just to accept the word of God at face value. I'm always looking for God to perform. In the words of one preacher who stood on the platform, who was supposed to be preaching the word of God, cried out to God, come on down God and do your stuff. Really? That's what God does, is it? He does his stuff. That's exactly what Herod wanted Jesus to do. He wanted Jesus to do his stuff, to do miracles. He'd heard that he was a miracle worker. Well, do something. Jesus said, beware of that leaven. That's the leaven of sensationalism. And then I want to go back to 1 Corinthians for a moment, to chapter 5, and one more leaven, the leaven of malice. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 
And let's begin reading in verse 1. And we'll read all the way down to verse 8. It says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And he goes on and tells him not to keep company with fornicators. Now, here was a sin in this chapter, which was the talk of Corinth, both in the church and outside of the church, on the city streets. It was a public sin, not a private matter. In this text, we do not find a Christian who is privately struggling with some besetting sin, but a believer who is openly flaunting an immoral lifestyle. Now, the sin in question, we're told in verse 1, is fornication. And fornication really covers a whole spectrum of sexual sins. Pornea is the word which gives us the English term pornography. It covers adultery, fornication, homosexuality, lesbianism, bestiality, incest, basically anything that involves sexual activity outside of a legitimate marriage between a man and a woman. Now, the Roman world was as you probably are aware, very well acquainted with those uh, perverse practices and immoral practices. But we read that this particular sin, and we don't know precisely what it was, but it was such a shocking thing that the Gentiles were taken aback by it. It was a sin not so much as named among the Gentiles. Now, Corinth was a very immoral city. So for this man to engage in a sin that scandalized the citizens of Corinth, it really must have been something pretty shocking, something pretty awful. But whatever it was, it brought reproach, not only upon this man himself, but upon Christ and upon Christ's church. Now, what did the Corinthian church do about it? Well, they, Paul says, gloried in it. That is, they gossiped about it. You know, instead of dealing with it and saying, we're going to handle this sin and handle this fellow, they rather relished what was going on. It was a juicy bit of grass gossip. It was something to talk about over a sandwich in Sunday evenings when they were having their tea and fellowship. Have you heard what he's up to now? And so they ought to have disciplined this man. They ought to have expelled him from their number if he was unrepentant. But they were unashamed of the matter. And they even harbored the wrongdoer, knowing what was going on. You see, friends, 
in churches, there are some people who relish scandal. And there are some people who live for drama. They want their whole lives to be a soap opera. And there's some people who like a church if it's a soap opera. And, uh, you know, Paul says the problem here is that his sin has exposed your sin. That a little leaven, what he's doing, has leavened the whole lump. You know, you put a little bit of leaven into some dough and you, and you bake it. Well, what happens? The, the, whole, the whole loaf of bread expands. And that's the picture that Paul paints of the Corinthian church. He says, there was leaven among you. And instead of putting it out as you should have done, and as they would have done under the conditions of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, removed it from their homes, instead you've allowed it to remain. And the consequence is that it has infected you. You're now glorying. You've become puffed up in this sin. Rejoicing in it. Friends, we must no more tolerate open and public sin in the body of Christ than we would tolerate um, disease in our own bodies. We must not allow any activity that brings reproach to the name of Christ and does hurt to the gospel to continue unchecked. We as a church have a responsibility to regulate our own behavior. Now in every New Testament example, leaven is seen as something sinful, something evil, as something degenerative. And the feast of unleavened bread tells us that leaven must be rooted out. Now, we find a great deal then in this feast really to teach us Primarily, of course, it revolves around the flight of the Israelites from Egypt and how they had to leave in haste. And and it describes the sweet taste of freedom that they enjoyed. But prophetically, it foretells of Christ, who without sin uh, was in his burial without corruption, and who not only saved those who believe, but sanctifies those who believe to live lives that are pleasing unto God. And then practically, It addresses issues in our own lives. Are we living hypocritically? We need to get that leaven out. Are we seeking sensational things in in religious experience? We need to rid ourselves of that leaven and rely solely on the word of God. And are we guilty of glorying in sin, especially the sins of others? Are we gossips? Uh, Do we discuss people's sin when we know about it and rather enjoy the conversation instead of seeking to put that sin to bed and deal with it and if necessary, remove that person from our fellowship if they're hurting the cause of Christ. We must never tolerate sin in our lives or in our fellowship and how careful we must be then to remove the leaven which typifies that rottenness and filth and sin within. We'll leave that there for this evening. And Lord willing, next Sunday, or next not Sunday, next Wednesday, we'll deal with the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits, which pertains to the resurrection of Christ.